JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. From PFF, Brad Spielberger's on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. You didn't go to MetLife Stadium last night, did you? Thankfully, I stayed out of the rain and out of the, the depressing scene of MetLife Stadium for the last two nights. No, I, I was not there. You know, it's, it's funny. As a Jets fan, I mean, it, it, it had to be great, a little celebration, because obviously Buffalo screwed the pooch like nobody's business in that game last night. But this was almost an experience that was... I don't know if I want to call it enjoyable because somebody got injured, but it was an experience that you really needed to gather, I think, sitting at home with all of your devices, if you know what I mean. Because it was such rapid-fire, nonstop information for this. This was one of those evenings when it was certainly you were better off being at home than you were, I thought, at the stadium. I completely agree. Yeah, sorry to cut you off there. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Where it was almost surreal at first, you're sitting there and you're, like you said, refreshing your timeline trying to get any updates. First it was foot, then I saw ankle, then he goes in the medical tent, goes back to the locker room, then you get the negative x-ray, then you get the doctor saying, well, ligaments and and tendon tears wouldn't show up on an x-ray. It was. It was like everything was kind of happening in real time. Um, You know, it, it it really was surreal. It's uh, Brad Spielberger of PFF. Uh, there have been a lot of, of both uh, reasonable and lack thereof of answers that people believe. The Jets will go as far as bringing in a veteran quarterback presence. We know Zach Wilson is going to get that call. There's no doubt he is going to be the starter. But who might they end up settling on to bring in to be the backup, at least for now? Yeah, I think you get a lot of the flashy names right out of the gate. A lot of players, teams, a lot of you know guys, players want to trade for. Uh, fans want to you know go after and all these things, but I think it's going to be a much more measured approach. And the only free agent name is maybe a Carson Wentz. We know he's out there still working out, trying to get a tryout, a workout somewhere. I would imagine he gets to at least come in the building and talk with the Jets. From a trade standpoint, I think a guy like a Case Keenum in Houston uh, is in a San Francisco offense right now in Houston with that new coaching staff, is the number three quarterback. They have Davis Mills as the backup. I know neither of those names are exciting for Jets fans to hear, but I don't think they're going to make some splashy move. I think you go out, you get a competent player um, because, frankly, I know they've put all their, you know, confidence behind Zach Wilson, but he just can't play. I mean, you saw it last night, uh, had the interception that was just right in the defender's hands, ran backwards 40 yards on two scrambles that could have been, you know, 40-yard loss sacks. He, he just doesn't really know what he's doing out there. Well, and, and you saw they had to be the, the ultimate – 
you know, screwing yourself type of deal last night that Buffalo had to do for the Jets to get that win. I mean, all, on all fronts, and especially starting with their quarterback, Josh Allen, it, was that a, a serious red flag or was that a moment in a long season in week one red flag last night for the Bills quarterback? Honestly, for me, it was a serious one. So, so look, this defense is his kryptonite. You look last year, the Jets held him to six yards per attempt or less in both outings. They held him to a PFF grade below 60 in both outings. He doesn't do either of those things very often. Um, and they killed him again last night. But, but my thing why I think it's a glaring red flag is, okay, you're Josh Allen. You know you're playing Zach Wilson for three and a half quarters of football. You know you really need to not do a lot. Just move the ball down the field, waste some time, kick some field goals, and you still have the mentality of trying to hit a home run on every single drop back. He probably took half a dozen massive shots when he was scrambling, refused to go out of bounds. It's like if you're doing that against Kansas City in a playoff game, sure, I love it, I get it, I understand it. Last night it was so, so, so unnecessary, and he's still pressing. And I know he called himself out for the game, but if he couldn't do it last night, I'm not sure he's ever going to. Is that the Dolphins the front runner? You think in that division? And I know again, one week is what we're basing our opinion on here. But would you call them the front runner in that division, considering what has transpired over the first week of the season? You know, I guess you could. I was low on Buffalo coming in, not just Josh Allen. I really don't think their roster is as loaded as it's been in past years. The offensive line got decimated last night, which was not surprising to me at all. Their pass catches outside of Stephon Diggs, I think, are underwhelming. You look at Miami. If Tua Tagovailoa is healthy, yes, their roster is better. Their defense is loaded even without Jalen Ramsey. You have a young edge rusher in Jalen Phillips that I think is going to be a household name by the end of this season. Their offensive line did not have left tackle Teron Armstead, a phenomenal player, did not play, and they still put up 36 points and, and were exceptional. Mike McDaniel might be already a top-five play caller in the NFL. Um, yes, maybe a bit of an overreaction. Buffalo's going to be good, um, but Miami is loaded. What you make of Cleveland and Cincinnati? Was that more about the rain or just more about inexplicably the offense of the Bengals, all, all those high-dollar guys uh, being absolutely useless in this opener? Yeah, I think weather was a big part of it. I mean, Deshaun Watson's stat line wasn't really much better than Joe Burrow's. And I also think we saw last year Joe Burrow gets the appendix surgery. He had four interceptions and looked awful against the Pittsburgh Steelers in week one. Now you flash forward a year, has the calf injury. His first full practice in about a month was on Thursday. Then he comes in this game. And the Browns pass rush unit, you saw the additions. Darius Smith had five pressures. Obawaka Runflow, a new signing, had a sack. Shelby Harris had a tackle for loss on the interior. That is a loaded roster. But I think Cincinnati's going to figure it out just like last year. You know, slow start, but they'll bounce back. Brad Spielberger, PFF, talking NFL. Week one thoughts here on the Andy Moore Automotive Crew Potline. So the Ravens win and win in fine fashion, yet lose their running back, J.K. Dobbins, for the season. I know John Harbaugh had mentioned yesterday that, you know, they're not going to fill that gap with anybody open market wise or try to trade for anybody right now. Do you think they will hold strong to what he said yesterday or will they have a change of heart? No, I do not. Um, you know, Gus Edwards also has dealt with injuries the last couple of years, just like J.K. Dobbins, and looked really uh, non-explosive in that game. You did see Justice Hill, another backup for them, have a couple scores. They have a young guy named Keaton Mitchell they like a lot, who is also hurt right now. And, and Melvin Gordon just is not an explosive player anymore. So, he wasn't great last year, wasn't efficient, but if I'm Baltimore, I give a phone call to Leonard Fournette, 
look, he can catch the ball. He had 73 receptions last year. He's a solid option. I think in that offense with Lamar Jackson, it would open up running lanes for him that did not exist last year with Tom Brady in Tampa. Um, I'm sure they'll try to weather the storm, but I think they have to add a body at some point. All right. With, with Pittsburgh, you talk about a mess. It was an absolute mess at home and their loss to the 49ers. And now we hear Deontay Johnson's going to miss some time. Uh, Casey Hayward's going to be out for a while. We hear that as well. And uh, it was not a fantastic debut for quarterback Kenny Pickett. Uh, in Pittsburgh on Sunday, where is this team? It seems like Mike Tomlin always comes up with answers regardless here, but there does seem like there are a lot of questions going into week number two for a team that looked really bad Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I think you could argue they lost, you know, their most important offensive player in Deontay Johnson for a while. You know, the hamstring, I think, could be at least four weeks, if not longer. And then Cam Hayward, probably only behind T.J. Watt, the second most important defensive player for them. I did like, really like what I saw from rookie Keanu Benton, the second-round pick on the interior. So he's going to have to step up and play a pretty big role in Cam Hayward's shoes right away. But the story for them is they overhauled that offensive line. You bring in Isaac Somalo at left guard. You have you know, tackles that are supposed to get better this year, and they got dominated by San Francisco. And now the Cleveland Browns defensive line I just talked about up next in the schedule, if they play like that, they're going to get killed again. I, the, the Cam Hayward is, is interesting to me because I, how long is that going to end up being? He will ultimately so, come back, right? He will come back, but it said, they said at least eight weeks. So we're Man. talking kind of like T.J. Watt last year, yeah. week 13, you know, something like that. That's a, a long time. Brett Spielberger of PFF. He joins us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What, what did you make of the debut of Anthony Richardson here in that Colts loss to the Jags Sunday? I thought he looked really good. Look, you're going to have the rookie mistakes. You saw plenty of mistakes from C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young as well. Uh, but Richardson, you know, a couple errant throws and a couple missed opportunities where he probably could have uncorked it sooner. But you saw, yes, he did take a handful of sacks, but I, I think that is going to go away. Yeah, I think you saw confidence. I think you saw an offense devised by Shane Steichen that made a lot of sense. After there was a lot of pressure early, they started getting the ball to Josh Downs, letting him create after the catch, as opposed to, you know, try to go downfield to Alec Pierce and, and doing more things to just get the ball out of his hands quickly to Pittman and to Josh Downs. I, I was encouraged by the performance. I think he's going to continue to get better and stack performances. I'm optimistic. I. Outside looking in, I mean, obviously we're here, and I know that you probably know my feeling on what I believe is a a desperate need for Jonathan Taylor to be a part of this because of these skill position players and where they aren't are with this team, or whether or not, I should say, where they're not right now. But what do you make of it? Do they desperately need Taylor to come back, or with what they have makeshift-wise moving forward, is it okay considering this is a rebuild to you? I mean, it obviously is going to be a huge benefit to this offense. You see another injury to Evan Holt, who obviously wasn't going to have a huge role, but a good pass catching back, a good pass blocker, um, and a fun player. Had a couple nice plays, and then unfortunately goes down. I do think getting Zach Moss back will be huge. He was actually pretty efficient to close out last year running the football, but he's not dynamic like a Jonathan Taylor. You're not going to throw him the ball. He's not going to break off explosive 50-60 yard gains with regularity. You can't weaponize him in his own read type of situation with an Anthony Richardson to the same degree you could Taylor. Yeah, it's not a disaster because they're not going to win many games regardless. But but if you want to see growth and see this offense play better, you can't have Deion Jackson with carries for 14 yards. 
uh, that's obviously not going to get it done. Well, you no doubt about that. Uh, again, it's Brad Spielberger, a PFF, with us. So the Texans didn't look good on Sunday at all. That's next up on the road for the Colts on Sunday down in Houston. Was the ineffectiveness in that first start for C.J. Stroud more about his youth and inexperience or more about just an absolute dismantled-looking offensive line in Houston? I think it was the offensive line. I actually was pretty encouraged by him as well. I had a couple nice throws. Yeah, we're talking about a different center, different left guard, and different right tackle than he was supposed to start the season with. And they poured resources, you know, trade for right guard Shaq Mason, sign him to an extension, sign both tackles to extensions. Obviously, he's a first-round pick last year on Kenyon Green, the left guard. He's a second-round pick on Juice Scruggs, the center this year. Um, and a bunch of those guys do not play. So I think they'll get better. They'll figure it out. But, hey, I love DeForest Buckner and Grover Stewart and Quiddy Pay, et cetera, et cetera. I-, I love that matchup for them in week two. Yeah, I, and it's an opportunity. I mean, again, I look at the Colts on Sunday – Brad and and they were there it's just it was like similar set of circumstances that we've seen with a different regime different quarterback you know some different players certainly a different coach and it was a falling apart in the fourth quarter it was an inability to close you would expect that offensively with the inexperience of Richardson but to me what was problematic and even being put in bad situations and being on the field too much, that defense has to step up. You can't give up 14 regardless of the situation in the fourth as they did. And that's unfortunate because for most of the rest of the game, the defense looked pretty good. Yeah, you know, I think unfortunately when it comes down to the wire and teams need to throw the football against them, they're going to be able to. I mean, this is one of the most inexperienced secondaries in the entire NFL. Uh, so early on, you know, when team when the Jaguars were – I mean, look, Calvin Ridley was running wild the entire time. But, but yeah, I mean, that was a great offense, a great quarterback, a great group of receivers, you know, some of the best in the NFL – but it is going to be a concern where when you know teams need to throw, if you're not getting pressure with your front seven, which they should, um, those teams are going to complete those passes. Less snaps for Derrick Henry in that opener and that loss for the Titans in New Orleans. Is that good or bad for Tennessee and their offense moving forward? And I guess even the better question is, is that going to be the norm? Yeah, I mean, he's been, you know, in an outlier level situation with his touches the last couple of years. It's different than every other back in the NFL but we did see he had the foot issue where, he, you know, he had the plate in his in his, uh, his shoe for a while for a couple games. It was inefficient last year or two years ago, whenever that was. And I think Ty J. Spears is a dynamic player, is a good pass catcher, can make guys miss an open space, had a couple nice missed tackles forced. Um, I think they should keep that up. But Rabel did say post game, you know, it was kind of because of game scripts and certain things. I don't know, they were never down more than a touchdown the entire time. So I think that is going to be the norm, and I think it is a good thing for the long run. All right, Packers, what would you think of their win in Soldier Field over the Bears? And I guess to counter that as well, how about the Bears in the way that they were dismantled, especially in the second half of that game? Yeah, I mean, this is a perfect encapsulation of we can talk about, you know, pass catchers and corners and all the fancy, you know, fun players on the outside. But football, even in 2023, is still won and lost in the trenches. And this was an absolute massacre on both sides of the football by the Green Bay Packers. Uh, They had 35 pressures per our charting, second only to the Dallas Cowboys in week one. And they allowed five pressures, the lowest in the NFL by a decent margin. So, you know, it it was just when that happens, I don't care how good the rest of your players are. You're not doing many games. So for the Chicago side, look, Justin Fields, he does have the excuse of the offensive line. It's not good. But you watch the film from that game. They had a couple of receivers open on even simple concepts like mesh and, 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 you know, back shoulder digs and simple things he probably could have hit. 
and just doesn't uncork it. He, he still does not seem to see the field all that well. All right. The, the Lions off at 1-0, and zero too, with that opening night win on Thursday in Kansas City. Yesterday, we learned Chris Jones signed a one-year deal, so his holdout is over. Can you view it, Brad, as it being worth it for Chris Jones in holding out and now getting in and back with his team with that one-year deal? Not in any way, shape, or form. I mean, this was malpractice, frankly, by his representation. I feel very, very bad for the player. Uh, you look at the details there. Yeah, he probably will make back the fines he forfeited via the incentives. Uh, I think $2 million of the incentives are just tied to playing 50% of snaps, which he should do. But, you know, Aaron Rodgers also played four snaps in the season yesterday. So nothing is given. And then the incentives tied to sacks. I know he's Chris Jones, but... 10 sacks, 15 sacks is a very, very high number for an interior defender. Uh, no, I, I don't want to go too far and say something inflammatory, but I hope his deal in the offseason is, is negotiated by somebody else uh, next year. <laughs> it's a Brad Spielberger of PFF. With us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So the Colts are going to get the Rams coming up in a couple of weeks, and I, I thought that that was going to be a doable home date for them. And I also thought a lot more about Seattle going into that week number one. You know, what happened in Seattle with the Rams in that matchup? Because the Rams, I thought, came out of that, came away with that looking impressive. By far the biggest surprise result of week one for me. I was so, so high in Seattle coming in, not only for the season, but also this game in particular. In my opinion, it was more a failure of the defense. Uh, they, they had no pressure all day long. They go out and sign Draymond Jones to a $17 million per year deal. He had, a, he had zero pressures on the day. Uh, you know, they, they change up the entire defensive line against a completely patchwork Rams offensive line and allow Matthew Stafford to go 10 of 18 on throws 10-plus yards downfield. There's no Cooper Cup out there. Okay, six-round rookie Puka Nakua is going to come in and have 10 catches for 120 yards. It, it was a pathetic showing from Seattle. I, I was shocked by it. Yeah, it might have been. You might be right about that. I mean, the the biggest surprise of the opening weekend. I just, uh, I didn't expect that what whatsoever. What are you writing about, Brad? Moving forward here. Yeah, so uh, I put out something today covering all the injuries in Week One and potential replacements. Should the team look outside the building or maybe uh, just find a you know an in-house replacement? And then I'm going to start a weekly article going forward that's already looking forward to the off season. You know, looking at what are the weakest units per roster, and then Uh-oh. name a draft. <laughs> yeah, and then name a draft prospect and a free agent signing they could make going into the next off season. Kind of just keeping track of how these rosters look going forward. All right, I want your thoughts on this before I let you go. Because the Colts are going to need to sign, I believe, a veteran running back here this week. And you mentioned Evan Hull. Um, and I know that uh, you know Zach Moss could be coming back, but I, I feel that they have that need there. Deion Jackson was an absolute mess. Um, if they're going to go that direction, would they not just bring back a guy like Kenyon Drake that they cut that was involved in the system, you know, during training camp and such, kind of make it easy this week and bring him back? If they were going to look for a veteran presence like that, would you think it would be him? I think so, but you know, you also bring in veteran free agents like Kareem Hunt for a reason, right? And the report was Indianapolis called him while he was in New Orleans and offered him more money to play for them than for the Saints. Maybe Hunt still wants more money and wants a better offer from some other team. But, you know, I, I just – Kenyon Drake, I think, at this point isn't going to give you a whole lot. Yes, he knows the system, so maybe you know, this week it would help. But but if you want to actually make a meaningful difference, I think you got to give up you know, Kareem Hunt another call. Yeah, I don't know if they do, though. <laughs> I don't know. Not, not so much giving him a call, but I, I don't know if they really care too much about having a – what we would like to call a meaningful difference, if that makes sense. 
Just think I'm they just kind of go you. what they have on because because you could have done that. I mean, it's not like you know this lack of skill position players that can make a difference. It's not like this is new. I mean, this is something at running back that we have seen for a while. It's been a month. They wrote that regarding Jonathan Taylor, and you still look at the lack of difference makers they have in pass catching and running the football. Yeah, this is not altogether new. This has been hanging over this team's head for a while. Yeah, no, I hear you. Like you said, it's, they're not like tanking or anything, but they're not going to you know, spend extra money and make a bunch of extra moves to maybe, you know, marginally increase the actual chances of winning football games. Why not let young players get reps, get experience, get better for when the games truly matter, you know, in 2024 and beyond. Is that a detriment, though, to the growth of Anthony Richardson? I don't think so, because I do think the pass-catching group is is solid, and I think the offensive line obviously played better this week. I think you want to see more and more from Bernard Raymond, but, you know, we knew coming in he was a raw prospect, a great athlete, but not, not a football player for all that long. You know, I don't think so. I think Shane Steichen, you have to defer and trust him. Coach the rookie Justin Herbert, coach the, you know, sophomore and junior Jalen Hurts, I think he knows what he's doing. Hey, Brad, always a pleasure, man. Every Tuesday, Brad Spielberger, a pro football focus with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Enjoy the week. We'll do it again next Tuesday. You too. Sounds good. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, he covers for the star, the Colts, and uh, has had a lot to write about, certainly. Hopefully there's a little bit more in terms of the running back department. I'm not quite so sure, but Nate Atkins joins us. A veteran presence at that position, are we expecting that coming up in the not-so-distant future, you think? I've been expecting them to sign somebody. I mean, you're at a point where, you know, it was interesting enough last week, I don't know if they were counting on having Zach Moss because late in the week they decided to downgrade him to, you know, out for the game. They didn't make that ruling until Saturday. And then, of course, you know, they lose Evan Holt to, we don't know the severity yet, but it it definitely sounds like he's not going to be available this week. And, of course, we saw what it was like with Deion Jackson in the lead role there. You know, and other than that, there's Jake Funk. So uh, maybe Zach Moss is back this week. I do think if Zach Moss were to play, You'd see a lot more sort of uh, that, that veteran aspect to it. It's a guy who knows where to run, how to run. The thing is, he's not explosive. He ran like a four, six, five, forty, but he can do everything other than that as far as catch the ball, pass, protect, uh, run with good vision. Uh, you know, hit the hole hard, not fumble as much as you know. I guess as we saw on Sunday, he's although he has had some fumble issues earlier in his career. But, I mean, that's still just one guy, and it's, there's no telling that, you know, what if he gets hurt on the first snap of a game and then you're right back in this spot. So I've been expecting them to do something. I'm not quite sure what direction they'll go because they've, you know, they've made an offer to Kareem Hunt, but I I just get the sense that Kareem Hunt is waiting, probably looking for something a little bit more long-term role for him because we're in a situation here where Zach Moss could come back and be the starter, and then in three weeks maybe Jonathan Taylor's back. So it's kind of a weird spot to go after a guy like Kareem Hunt, who still seems to view himself as a either a you know a starting back or maybe a one A one B type type of a back. And I'm not quite sure what direction they'll go, but they need a veteran. Hey, Nate, is it reasonable to suggest that they they don't? And I'm not going to suggest that I panic or you panic, but they don't view this as um, as as important. Oh my goodness, type of situation as maybe you and I and the fans do right now. Uh, I think that's fair to say. I do think, though, that I, I felt going into week one that they sort of had this chip on their shoulder about 
proving that they could run the ball in a way that didn't need Jonathan Taylor as much, in a way that you know could could balance Anthony Richardson with the backs they have. Heard a lot about running back by committee. Uh, you know, you know they they had options. They had chances to go out and sign somebody. Zach Moss got hurt camp. We know they tried with Kareem Hunt, but it did seem they got to a point where they thought, you know what, with our new run scheme we're installing, with an offensive line that currently is healthy, and with Shane Steichen's system and with Anthony Richardson, we're going to go out there and show that, you know, maybe we aren't explosive like we could be with Jonathan Taylor, but we can get the job done. And it just seemed like a shell shock group at the fact that they didn't do that really in any way. Uh, you know, the running backs on Sunday had 16 carries for 25 yards and two lost fumbles. So it was about as bad as it could possibly go. I know what they're probably surely thinking is that, hey, it's it's just one game, uh, especially one game for an offensive line that is learning a new blocking scheme. That is naturally going to take a little bit of time. But at some point you got to have backs that you can really trust in big moments. And I just think that was a hard look for Deion Jackson, who doesn't have track record to really combat it, you know, to, to have moments like the, the fourth down run, the two fumbles, and – um, and just not just not hitting the holes that were there. And uh, so, I don't know. I, I, again, I think if Zach Moss is back, that may change things because I do know they thought fairly highly of his ability to step in and do some of that. So, I think it may very much depend on if we see him out there at practice tomorrow. If, if they felt a little bit better about the situation moving forward at running back, would Deion Jackson still be on this team after that performance Sunday? Uh. I mean, it was, it was a tough performance for sure. And if they had Zach Moss and Jonathan Taylor healthy and Evan Hull healthy, I think that would be definitely something they have to think about. But right now, none of those guys are healthy. So it's a little different situation. Deion Jackson, like the thing I've, I've been trying to say with him is he came in, he caught their eye initially as an undrafted free agent who could play special teams. And then they kind of tapped in and they saw his receiving background as a guy who didn't become a running back until his senior year of high school, and he flashed that way last year. And if they could create that role specifically for him, I think he would be what they thought he was. But I think so far what he's showing is he's not just magically transformed himself into something a lot more than that right now. And, uh, you know, it's interesting they drafted Evan Hull, I guess, in some ways of a redundancy to those third-down skills, uh, but, you know, but, but less of the special teams side of it. So... I do think the team side is going to help Dion out, especially since that seems like an area where uh, they need a little bit of work too. But certainly, I think if there were any uh, you know illusions about him kind of being ready to be a, a big time runner uh, for this team right now, I think uh, I think Sunday was a bit of a you know a hit to the pride. So Nate Atkins of the Star with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I mentioned this a little bit earlier too. Kenyon Drake, maybe. I mean, in a pinch, bring somebody back that had been here for more than just a little bit. I mean, is is that, you think, a viable option here moving forward, or might we be looking at somebody else? I think there's a decent chance of that because of the familiarity. You know, that's if, if Kareem Hunt's still in the same spot of just not wanting to take the offer and come to this situation – they may not be getting a back that necessarily is what you would think of as a you know number one guy, more of a fill-in. Uh, Kenyon Drake is it's interesting because I I cut kind of signing when they made it based on how many times he's stepped in with mobile quarterbacks and delivered more than four yards of carry. We just didn't see that at all in the preseason and training camp. Something 
just felt off. If he, I don't know if he had he'd gotten out of shape. He said that was not the case. I don't know if it's it's signs of aging or if it. I, I don't know if it was just a small sample and it it looked that way. But it did not look like a guy that I thought would have made a difference on Sunday. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe there's maybe there's a little bit more in the tank than we saw. Hey, you know what, Nate? When I think about skill position players, and in this case, you know, trying to fill that void at running back, and you know, talk about you know us thinking that it is top priority. You got to do it right now, and then maybe the Colts not feeling the same way. Now, part of my reasoning for that is they've known for such a long time what they've had. I mean, they've known about the running back situation for the better part of a month. They've chosen not to do anything about it. Uh, They've known about the skill position players and where they would rank and where they are for a long period of time. They haven't done anything about that. Didn't do anything about it other than, you know, Isaiah McKenzie in the offseason. So I just just don't think that they prioritize it this particular year. And I I think the fans kind of look at that and go, hey, well, wait a minute. I mean, I know it's a rebuild, but when you get that close, it'd be nice to maybe make a player here and then see a win or two coming up. Is that a reasonable thought? Yeah, for a few years now, it's there's always been a couple positions where I feel like either us or, or fans are a lot more alarmed than Chris Ballard has been. You know, it's, they love to they love to draft and develop, and they love to trust guys that they've watched behind the scenes, but. You know, they want to take that next step, and they, they think it's going to come. And sometimes it works, And then, but there's always enough of those ifs going into a year that a couple of them don't work out. And I think back to last year, you know, people wondering why they didn't do more at left tackle than, you know, move Matt Pryor from essentially from the right side of the line to left tackle. Uh, that was one where they, you know, they, they banked on – what they saw behind the scenes and what they believed they'd be able to develop and and it didn't work. Uh, so I don't know if that'll, if that'll happen again. The thing is when it doesn't work, I mean, Chris Ballard has always come back at the end of the year and like he, he, he admits that it didn't work. He, he sees the results and understands it's a results-based business. So it's, sometimes it's one of these where they just want to let it play out and see the proof on the field uh, before they react to it. So I would say that in that sense, I'm guessing one game isn't going to get them there, but uh, I do think that there could be there could certainly be a moment in the next uh, next few weeks. It's certainly you know before the trade deadline where they start looking around and wondering not just running back specifically, but the combination of new run scheme with an offensive line figuring things out, running backs that they didn't really address once Taylor stuff got weird, and then the fact that they decided to roll with only. Uh, four wide receivers total on the roster, and then some other things that have been unfortunate with tight end injuries. It's just really snowballed to where it's like they counted on the best-case scenario of all the guys they had left staying healthy and fitting the way they wanted, and just a couple of those not working out kind of has them in a, a tricky spot where they may have to reassess. Yeah, I just it, it is not good, though, when the fans and the media around here scream and yell about the lack of playmaking ability and skill position players, and then they cross their fingers and so-called count on guys evolving and or not getting injured, and they do, they didn't speak very highly about any forethought as far as the Colts are concerned, organizationally speaking. And that's that's kind of been the way that this thing has worked for a while. So I can kind of understand a fan's disgruntled standpoint, even in a season in which has been described by us as a rebuild yeah i understand it too you know there's some of it some things 
I think we have to accept this year of they were not going to push the chips in the way they did last year when they signed Stephon Gilmore kind of late. They traded for Yannick Ngakwe. Um, they still could have done more, but they at least did the things. They went out and got high-level players at, at questionable positions. This year, especially on defense, you can understand why they took a little bit more of a tread water approach when they didn't think that they were really close to a title. And it's to them, it was more about you know evaluating young players on the roster to see what 2024 brings. But where you can understand sort of the pushback to that is even in that mindset, even looking just in the future way, I mean, this is all about building Anthony Richardson in the passing game around him, which means investing in that too. And some of the things that they're passing up on don't really cost much money at all. So this team right now has around $20 million in cap space. If we're talking about signing a capable backup offensive lineman or a right guard who could compete to start or a backup outside wide receiver if Alec Pierce or Michael Pittman Jr. go down or a, start, a running back who can fill in for three weeks when Dak Moss and Jonathan Taylor are gone, like all of those things can cost just a couple million dollars for guys out there waiting right now for that opportunity. And it just seems like that's where that's where the penny pinching can get a little tiresome to people is that you understand not maybe going all the way out for a Stephon Gilmore uh, in a year like this, but at least raising the floor enough to where, you know, the guys around you have a chance. I think about Shane Steichen and Anthony Richardson are doing this for the first time, and there's going to be some growing pains in that. But you don't want a situation where you just say, well, we gave them absolutely no shot to do the thing that we brought them here to do because of certain deficiencies on the roster. And, again, it's just one game, but I felt that for both of them. I didn't think that Shane Steichen really had a chance to uh, dial up anything aggressive with the way the Jaguars just played back and still dominated the run because of just the lack of, of rushing threats. And then for Anthony Richardson, you know, he, he, I thought, adjusted well to just kind of taking what was there. I never, I did not see him going 24 or 37 in his first game, but almost the only guy making any plays with the ball was Michael Pittman Jr. And at some point he needed somebody to break a tackle or get loose or, or do something to, to turn one of those six yard gains into a first down. And it almost didn't happen at all. So right now they've got to figure something out because. Uh, you know, it's all about developing those guys, but you don't want them in a position where it doesn't really matter so much what they do if someone else is holding them back. With that ridiculous joke of a running game on Sunday, does that move the needle at all with the Colts as far as Jonathan Taylor is concerned? I mean, I think if you're Jonathan Taylor and his agent, you're feeling better about you know the the idea that you know this this whole thing goes back to the state of the league at running back has been running backs don't matter and they're interchangeable. And some teams have proven if you're replacing an average running back, that can often be the case for this, for an elite back like Taylor, this was going to be the test. And there's just no way anybody in their right mind could look at Sunday and think that Jonathan Taylor would have done the same thing. Understanding that, yes, and I've seen people say this, that there were not, you know, there's not a lot of room to run. The run blocking was not very good. Well, it was not good all of last season, and Jonathan Taylor averaged four and a half yards a carry, and the backfield on Sunday didn't even average two yards a carry. And if you go back to last season, I think it's a good test for it is that in the, the run game got a lot better, after, ironically, after Taylor got hurt last year, and uh, they played the same offensive line and all that. But 
up until that point, I'd have to go back and check the numbers, but it was staggering to see the difference between Taylor's yards per carry and any other running back they tried last year. It was the same deal as what we just saw on Sunday, just nothing happening on the ground. So I think there's a point where they may start to realize, like, they they maybe thought a little too much about, you know, just changing the scheme in the in, in the uh, in the offensive line coach would just transfix this. At the same time, though, the two sides have been so dug in on the difference between how much they think that's worth that I don't know that it's going to move the needle enough. Uh, maybe it opens a little bit of conversation if they if they lay another dud this week. But uh, it's it's going to, to me, it's going to take more than just a little compromise. You know, something like Chris Jones just did with the Chiefs, uh, those kind of one-year contracts just to sort of up the pay a little and get them on the field. I've been thinking for a while that's off the table with Jonathan Taylor unless something really changes, someone really has a change of heart. But that they've dug in so far in the two sides that I don't think they left a lot of room for uh, reacting positively like this. So I'm a little skeptical still. I've, Nate Atkins of the Star joins us. I've always explained this as being more of an Ursay decision. Um, Stephen Holder said yesterday it was more of a Ballard decision. I, I just I can't get away from the thought of if Jim Mercer really felt that it was necessary and they were so needy to get Taylor in there for production, for help and support of Anthony Richardson, whatever, that he would find a way to get the money like he did with T.Y. Hilton and push it through. So is this ultimately Ballard? Is Ursay having, you know, just kind of his drawing a line? in the sand here with what he had said earlier about this. Who is more behind this decision to stand firm against Taylor under these circumstances? Yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of of you and Steven on this. I really think it's pretty shared. If I had to pick one who's more uh, more the reason, I'm going to go with Jim Mercer for the reasons you're saying is that if he really, if he looked at this and really thought like we have to give this rookie quarterback the help he needs, even if it maybe doesn't fit everything as far as how he would traditionally build a team. It's just this moment calls for it too much. He would go and make it happen. He writes the checks, and he spent all of last season kind of doing whatever he wanted and forcing personnel decisions and has gotten involved on this enough already, you know, calling the meeting on the bus with Jonathan Taylor and um, some of the tweets about the CBA and, uh, you know, and, and just just other stuff has, has made you believe he's very much involved. I do absolutely do think that, that Chris Ballard has, has had his own hesitations about paying big money to a running back, doing it the same way he's done it in the past where, uh, you know, he had the comment in the press conference that they only won four games last year. And I, I've always thought I've had a different interpretation of that than others. I think what he's saying is just that the, the, the order of business they've taken to this point did not work. So to just repeat it would be, kind of a failure of why they brought Chris Ballard back and asked him to change some things. And so I think some uh, some patience was going to happen with him where he wanted to see Jonathan Taylor come back, run behind this new scheme, see just how valuable that is, see just how much better that is from him than the other backs on the roster, how much they need it. And they just couldn't get it to that point because Jonathan Taylor has no trust that that he'll stay healthy doing that or that there's a reward to staying healthy doing that, which is where uh, distrust, I think, with the the front office and with with ownership has come into this. So it's kind of like I think at at a certain point, Chris Ballard, Shane Steichen, and and Jim Mercer were all in the same spot of at least, you know, it's not the time for a big running back contract. 
Uh, but the way that it got so split apart to where neither side can see each other, I think Jim Irsay had a big role in that. Not, not necessarily meaning to, and that's a, that's the thing with Jim Irsay. A lot of times, you know, he could be a well-meaning person who's just, you know, he's just eccentric and and does some things he thinks are, are for the good of the team, but doesn't see the optics of it. And to me, to me, the bus meeting was was one of the biggest moments because if you're Jonathan Taylor, it's one thing for them to not pay you. It's another thing to escort you in front of a sold out crowd onto a bus to tell you and then everyone afterward that they're not paying you. Uh, unlike all the other, you know, franchise cornerstone players on the team. So the approach they're taking has always been justifiable. If they want to change the way they've done business, if they want to, you know, if they want to be patient, they've, there's a lot of good reasons to get to those points. Uh, but I, I just don't think that uh, I don't think Jim Irsay's way of displaying that in such a public manner has helped things at all. So I, I just think they're kind of all all to blame, and that includes Taylor too, who uh, you know Taylor for three years has kind of said things that he didn't fully believe when it came down to how much he was worth with this team, and just that kind of set up the shock of the moment too. So uh, I, I think it's just kind of been collective. Uh, Collective disagreements all around. Nate Atkins of the Star covers the Colts. He's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. Before I let you go, um, Shane Steichen was was on Sunday. He he was pretty uh, motivated to go for it. Um, he was aggressive, uh, and people have asked me. Um, is that bad coaching? And my response has been, that's who he is. I think that's how he's wired. Unfortunately, it's not the same as what he was doing to dial up aggressive plays as an OC in Philly with what they had on the field offensively compared to here. Is that a tone in which you think he will change or will he keep with this personnel he still has that aggressive nature of play calling that we saw on Sunday? Well, the issue with Shane is he was aggressive on the fourth down decisions, but I thought a lot less aggressive in the, you know, actual play design and, and script of the game. I thought he really tried to keep Anthony Richardson efficient with. Yeah, they eased know, him in. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, but then yeah, they got aggressive on fourth down. That's where you know he's so he's so conditioned to. You know, if it gets the fourth and one, fourth and two. You know, he loves that uh, that rugby-style quarterback sneak, and he has a quarterback who's, you know, 6'4", 255 pounds. To him, that's to him that's similar to having Jalen Hurts do it, and they converted so many last year. And I think the moment here where it, it looked to me like Deion Jackson wasn't 100% ready for it, but also the offensive line obviously didn't get the same push. Anthony's not as used to running that play. It's just one of those week one things you see all the time where until you're actually out there against the defense giving it everything with – First, you know, first string caliber players in a scheme, you don't quite know what you're working with, and so I think over time, you know, he's going to try and maintain that same sort of philosophy of of when to go for it. But it does it does come down to how much you trust what you have to do it. And that's where I think you had Jonathan Taylor in the backfield. You know, some of these fourth and fourth and two, fourth and threes are different decisions than you know having having Jake Funk back there. And then the same goes for if you had the Eagles offensive line or if you have uh, the Colts offensive line right now. So we'll see. I think he definitely wants to maintain that edge and, and be who he is. That's why they hired him. And, it, and he's he's been working with that confidence since he arrived. But at some point you also have to, you have to realize, like, 
you have, to, you have to ask your players to do things you think they're actually capable of doing, and, and that can always change a little bit. All right, this is kind of out of left field here, and this is, I guess, an opinion question for you more than anything else to close. But we saw Aaron Rodgers go down last night after, what, three plays uh, in his career with the Jets, um, and a lot of people today are citing the MetLife Stadium turf. Thus, I think everybody with turf – stadium fields around the NFL are probably going to take, at least for the short-term future, a little bit of heat. I'm curious, you think that there's ever going to be a mandate from the NFL let all these stadiums be played on natural gla- natural grass? You think that's coming? with Especially this type of hype surrounding that injury last night. It's just a thought. It may be ridiculous, but it's a thought I had. Yeah, I mean, I think if there's ever a chance, it's moments like Aaron Rodgers going down after, you know, he was you – know, the league is so much about its image and how that feeds just the beast of it in the bottom line. And you have a situation where you know, the team they put on hard knocks because of one quarterback, that one quarterback goes down in week one. Uh, it definitely raises a few more alarm bells. You know, they've tried to leave that up to the teams, but at the same time the league has found ways over the, over the course of time to sort of force changes. They used to do it by keeping – you know, Los Angeles open as a sort of a, you know, a threat point to where if cities don't improve their stadiums, you know, there's always that risk of them moving. Now that actually, you know, that ended up having with, happening with two teams. And then, you know, Vegas was another example of that. They finally put a team in Vegas. So it's kind of hard to do that with everybody, uh, threaten everybody like that rather than go at one stadium specifically. So, uh, you know, I could see where MetLife, MetLife specifically has had a lot of, uh, a lot of that talk over the years, uh, you know, players speaking out especially, and I could see them kind of really drilling down on a specific situation yeah. like that. I remember the Edwards Jones Dome several years ago, even to the point where Reggie Bush was suing them. Uh, that that kind of came to a head too, and, and that you know, I think that was a factor in that team looking around uh, about its long-term future. But it's going to be hard to kind of mandate it across the entire league because at the end of the day. You know, the Roger Goodell works for the owners, so it's going to come down to what the owners think about, you know, that situation, yeah. how it, you know, how much it's going to cost to change it, how much it matters to them that players are not happy about it, how much power the players can find to do anything about it. And but just over over the course of history, what I've always learned is like, you know, the the, the owners decide what goes here, and so players can get hurt and players can get upset, but until we get. Uh, the owners of the team specifically, collectively, as upset as they are, um, I, I tend to think that a, like a league-wide mandate like that is not uh, super realistic. All right. Within the last five minutes, Jake Funk signed to the 53-man roster from the practice squad, and uh, Evan Hall goes to the IR. So that was I, – I, I'm assuming that you probably thought that that was coming at some point today. Yeah, I think when uh, when Shane Sykin said that Evan Hall could miss a few games, I think we kind of knew yeah. there's going to be a little, little bit of shuffling there. And, and Jake Funk was, you know, he was he was a game day addition uh, on Sunday, so he obviously is going to move up. It'll just be interesting because as of right now, Zach Moss isn't back yet. Uh, Jake Funk could be your number two behind Deion Jackson, so I think they still have a little bit of work to do. But again, like I said, um, if Zach Moss is out there practicing tomorrow, maybe maybe they 
They are okay yeah. with that. All right, man. I appreciate you as always, Nate. Um, especially when I know this is your day off. But uh, we'll see you back in the stadium when the Colts get back in a couple of weeks and have you back on, I'm sure, sooner than that. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Yep. Thanks. Have me anytime. Week five of the high school season almost upon us. He'll be a part of that, of course, collegiately and more. And Greg Rakestraw, the fifth quarter huddle host on the Colts Radio Network, is with us now via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. What was altogether the tone of the show after that loss on Sunday? Mostly positive because, frankly, I think the bar is a little bit low. Uh, I think most people's gauge of this season is going to be how Anthony Richardson looks and kind of how I've described it throughout most of the preseason. Some good, some bad. Not overwhelmed in the slightest. So you had some folks that are upset at Chris Ballard. Some folks that are upset at Jonathan Taylor. Some folks that are upset with, you know, Shane Steichen's decision-making, a.k.a. fourth down calls or not taking three when you could have made it a seven-point game late in the game. But, again, I think, as you well know, everything about 2023 is going to be does Anthony Richardson look like a guy that could be the quarterback of this team for the next five to 10 to 15 years? And um, nothing on Sunday tells us that he won't be. Let's put it that way. Does the uh, the lack of, of skill position players, certainly, and especially with a running back group that averaged a yard and a half per carry last weekend, and it's one thing, it's not like that um, there's a great level of talent there, but does this help or hinder Anthony Richardson and his growth offensively on this team? Oh, it hinders it. I mean, he he, he needs more hope. Now, do, do I think it means that, uh, you know, he can't continue to develop? No. I mean, I think he can still be, become a, a very good quarterback in the National Football League, but any quarterback will tell you he is as good as his weapons are. And this group still needs help at wide receiver. Clearly, this group is missing not only its best running back, but its two best running backs uh, because of Zach Moss. And hopefully he will be able to play coming up Sunday in Houston. Let's also acknowledge that the Colts are not going to face a defense that is nearly as good in the Houston Texans as the one they played in terms of the Jacksonville Jaguars on Sunday. So would Anthony Richardson be helped by having perhaps more help at wide receiver? Of course he would be. Would Anthony Richardson be helped by Jonathan Taylor being available? Yes, he would be. And let's hope at least on the latter that, that that improves as of October the 8th. I want to switch gears to high school quickly with you as well. I mentioned week five is coming up on Friday, and our high school football game of the week brought to you by CarX in your 14 central Indiana locations. Brendan King's on the call of Warren Central and Ben Davis. I just saw the final score, but what did Ben Davis look like against IMG Academy last Friday night? Well, I was there on the call, uh, and, and they hung with them. Um, 20 points is probably a fair margin of victory because of a couple of plays going a different direction then IMG wins by five touchdowns and if a couple of plays going in a different direction then Ben Davis is is within a touchdown of IMG uh, the best way to put it is this it's 21 to 7 late in the first half and Ben Davis could not clock the ball in time could not get out of bounds their drive ends at the one yard line so let's say that's you know a field goal or a touchdown. Ben Davis gets the ball back to start the third quarter. They drive the ball down the field, and there's a young man, last name is Price, um, that, that is a defensive end for IMG that is going to play at the University of Oklahoma. 
He wears number 90, and, man, he channeled Steve Entman. He got up and, and read a screen or read a, a slant, jumped up, snared it with two hands, and he proceeded to run down the field. In fact, ran across the field and took it 95 yards for a touchdown. What was a 21-7 to game became a 27 or 28-7 to game at that point. Um, and so IMG was the better team, but that game was never in threat of being a running clock game. And Ben Davis legitimately moved the ball, not always inconsistently, but picked up yardage. And Ben Davis legitimately shut down the running game of a team that has an offensive line of no player smaller than 280 pounds. So I thought Ben Davis gave a great account of themselves on Friday night, didn't seriously threaten to win late, but didn't get run off the field either. And there is something to be said about that when you're playing a team that picks their players from an entire nation, let alone from one township on the west side of Indianapolis. So Greg Gregstraw with us. Do we have any cathedral hard feelings about how that game went down and split between a Friday night and a Saturday morning and then ultimately Chittard coming back and winning? No, I mean, it's a, that just kind of happens, and that's also kind of the the issue that Cathedral is in. You know, they, they have made Arlington their home field. They have invested in trying to make that field as, as, as nice as possible, but it's still grass, and it's, it's not artificial turf. Um, it, it, they're not the ones that are in charge of making sure that the lights work. I mean, it's just kind of the, 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 the issue they've had in terms of trying to find a field that could be their own. So, Do they not have you know, room for one over there? What, what's, why don't they, they have one? Field, they've got a field. There's no parking. There is no way on God's green earth you could park enough people on, on the hilltop. So they have a field. So they're JV and freshmen play there, and, and they practice there every day. There's no way at that facility they have enough room to park everybody. I would think so they'd have enough money if they wanted to like knock down like Lincoln Square Pancake Place over there off of uh, 56th Street or something and just like, uh, have uh, a, a, a bus back and forth of taking people. They could probably do that am i wrong they don't have that much money probably the biggest open piece of land would be where the uh where our former employers towers sit <laughs> at 6161 if they would want to take those down and and yeah. put a stadium in a floodplain you could probably play there if you would like to. yeah you couldn't play when it rains because you're right then everything would, right. would flood yeah. out so I, I guess what i would ask what 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 was the from what you had heard was the, such the difference between friday night and then Saturday morning with the way Chittard came back and won. Well, I am told that Chittard had a player that wasn't cleared to play on Friday that played on Saturday and made a big difference on Saturday. So, yes, I love it. I'm sorry. So, 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 yeah. so, 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 there, so, so there is that. Um, <laughs> and obviously, it's, I think it's an advantage for the team that is yeah. trailing whenever you have to come back the next day. Um, and and so it, it was a myriad of factors. You know, if, if those teams were to play seven times, maybe Chittard wins one or two. And it's also fair to say that Cathedral is maybe a little bit down and Chittard is really good. That should not take away from Chittard at all beating Cathedral. Because going in, I thought it would be a one-score game, and that's what it was. I, I, I told Kevin Bowen on Friday morning, I thought Cathedral would win by four or so. And they were in line to do that until, like, the final score of the game. So, um, Cathedral has, has Danny O'Neill, great player, but they did lose some. They lost a great kind of senior class in general two years ago and some great individual pieces last year. 
So they, I think they knew they would be a little bit down coming into the season, while Chittard is obviously the favorite in 3A. I can see at Chittard right now. All right, we can play on Saturday morning, and there's this guy. We got the 28 available. There's this guy with last name of Taylor, and he's not playing. He's healthy enough to play right now, but he can't. He's on the PUP. Let's suit him up and then play him on Saturday morning against Cathedral. That is that how that went down? I would assume that Pat Sullivan's wealth is what allowed <laughs> yes. Chittard to meet his contractual demands when Jim Irsay could not, would be my guess. Yeah, no doubt. It's, I mean, it's only a couple of slothfests away from really you know, bumping up, so we know that. I also believe be that, that, that this unnamed player or last-named player without a first-name, Taylor, that showed up for Chittard on Saturday morning was probably promised a lifetime supply of big green eggs. Also, it's probably yeah. part of the package as well. Yeah, no question about that. So, it's Greg Gregsterall with us. Um. I'm going to ask you this. Somebody had mentioned to me what a dude, and not our former dude from Louisville here and Andy Sweeney, but a different dude had said regarding IU dropping Louisville and then bringing in certainly a lesser opponent to presumably get themselves a win. Sure. And, 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 this, and I forget who this dude was, you know, went off and IU soft. And, you know, it, it's, it's low-hanging fruit. I mean, it's an easy target for IU football, whatever. And if I'm at Louisville, you know, I'd kind of look in the mirror at the mess that the program crap has been down there and, and just stay shut up. But, you know, obviously you can't for content's sake. What do you think about IU deciding to do this, dropping Louisville next year, and then uh, obviously downgrading their schedule in terms of trying to get a win and Tom Allen trying to get a win. I understand the Louisville perspective calling him soft, and, I can't, and, and, and again, I get it, and I'm not sure I would disagree with it. I also acknowledge where IU football is at. And let's, let's literally say this, there's four new teams joining the Big Ten next year. Is IU as good as any of those four programs? No. So, in theory, your conference schedule just got tougher. You know, we can talk about, hey, it's nice that you're no longer guaranteed to see Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State every year. Not like USC, Washington, Oregon, and UCLA are, 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 are you know, back of the pack. UCLA has been a little bit down, but with Chip Kelly, they seem to be kind of heading in the right direction. Obviously, Washington, the former IU quarterback, as good as they have been, you know, maybe in, in a generation. Um, and Oregon and U.S. sailing anew explain what recent history has been like for those guys. So, frankly, I get it. You may not like it, and I hate the fact that Indiana's not going to play Louisville. I hate the fact that Indiana doesn't play Kentucky. It hasn't played them in 20 years. But part of the reason why Indiana's not playing Kentucky is, is just as much as Kentucky doesn't want it either because they're playing UofL every year. They're like, listen, we already got nine tough games in the SEC. We've got a rivalry game. We don't need a second. So I credit Louisville for wanting to play Indiana and Kentucky in, in the same year. Um, but I, I understand why Indiana doesn't. I, frankly, Indiana's, Indiana's football program right now is at a place where their, their non-conference season needs to be the World Wide Web. I think you can translate that. W, W, W. And Louisville is pretty far from a guaranteed W. It's a possible W, but they need guaranteed dubs if you're IU. That's just the status of where their football program is. So with that in mind, how's this matchup look coming up on Saturday at noon? I think it's the great unknown, but obviously, you know, for Jeff Brom, you got to feel he's got a pretty good handle on how to scout Indiana um, just because of having played them every year for the last several years. So I'm not sure if Jeff truly knows what he has in terms of his U of L team, 
but this will be the opponent he is most familiar with on on the schedule this season. Um, you know, I don't know if U of L plays Syracuse, knowing that Purdue played them last year, uh, whatever the case may be. So I would probably lean towards Louisville, but I think it's a one score game because I'm, I'm not sure that either program is is any great shakes right now. To be honest with you, you make that decision. By the way, to to drop Louisville is is that a winning decision? In the long run, I mean, you're, you're going to win in the short term, but is that a winning decision in the long term to you? The Big Ten is at a point where, and again, knowing you're also not guaranteed to see Rutgers in Maryland every year, maybe you say you balance that out by getting Illinois and Northwestern. Um, again, I, I, I get it. You're playing nine guaranteed power five, power four, however we're going to phrase it, games, um, and you're adding – a lot of top-end talent to your league, I, I again, I understand why Indiana is doing it. I hope that they can get to a point a handful of years from now that they say, you know what, let's go and schedule another you know, SEC, ACC-level team in our three non-conference games. But right now, it needs to be an FCS game, it needs to be a MAC game, and it needs to be a, a Conference USA game because you're trying to stack wins because right now the barometer for Indiana football is can you get to six wins and get to a bowl. And it's frankly easier to do that when you're not playing an ACC team in the non-conference schedule. So if you're Purdue, you started out strong, then weather right. intervened, and then you had to wait for the better part of six-plus hours to get back on the field in Blacksburg, and then you come away with a 24-17 road win at Va Tech. How impressed were you with that effort? I was very impressed. And, and, and again, there's obviously, you know, overcoming the, the weather elements. You could say that it frankly made it a bit of an, of an lesser of a home field advantage for Virginia Tech, you know, having that long of a delay. But I think it was just, you know, it kind of felt like Purdue's backs were to the wall, you know, for this season already. Um, you know, you know, losing to Fresno State, who's a, who's a good team. But anytime you're a Big Ten team again against a non-Power 5 school and you're giving that uh, team a check to come play you, you should win that game, and Purdue didn't. So the fact that they were able to, you know, to overcome circumstances, and I know Virginia Tech isn't what it wasn't against Frank Beamer, still an ACC team. And Purdue got a road win against an ACC team. And you throw in that five-and-a-half-hour delay, I thought that was a season-changing win for Purdue. And again, because their schedule is much tougher this year, it doesn't guarantee them a bowl slot, which is, again, I think like we'd say about IU. I think six wins is the line of demarcation for success for Ryan Walters in his first season in West Lafayette. Is that guaranteed to happen because they beat Vitek? No. It's a lot easier to get there because you got that victory on Saturday. Hey, clearly, Sam Hartman has been a difference maker in the first couple of weeks of the season for Notre Dame under center. Is is this got legs? Is this a long-lasting type of thing? Can he be that for this team the entirety of the season? He's been that way for the last couple, three years of Wake Forest. And again, has, has Wake Forest been at the level of which Notre Dame is ranked right, right now? No. Uh, but he's experienced. He's talented. Uh, and because of playing at places like Clemson and Florida State, I don't think there's venues that are going to rattle him in terms of you know the remaining schedule uh, for Notre Dame. So I, even though the, the, the competition picks up, um, oh, you know, from what they saw in weeks one and two in terms of Navy and Tennessee State, I do think Notre Dame can replicate this. I, I'm not sure if they're a college football playoff team. I do think they're a top ten team that's in the CFP conversation. Let's put it that way. How's our guy Jack Kaiser doing up there? 
Uh, forgive me. I, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head just because I, I made it a point to watch as much Purdue as I could this Understand. weekend. I didn't have a chance to see the Irish, but uh, um, that kid's going to be successful in life regardless of what happens. I always thought as part of that class that he was in 2018 that we had three Sunday players. David Bell and George Karloftis are already there. I'm not sure if that's in the cards at this point for Jack, but I hope he gets the opportunity. But he's a, he's, he's a bright young man. He's going to be successful whether he ends up in the National Football League or not. Well, we're always going to have that connection with Pioneer and Eastern Green in a state title game <laughs> and him beating the absolute crap out of my fellas. We're always going to have that relationship. But but who who got the first touchdown in that game, John? Who scored first? Yeah, it was uh, Caleb Hamilton, right? I would. I was just going to say Eastern Green. So yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Say, whenever, whenever, whenever that comes up, you just, <laughs> I'm sure you took a picture of the scoreboard, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Show that. Show that seven nothing on the scoreboard, and then just erase the rest of that game from your memory. I think I did that for a variety of my games when I was at Eastern. So a lot of them. <laughs> well, too. they were undefeated in football when you and they were school, John. That <laughs> yeah. much I know. Hey, where are you Friday? So Friday night I have Carmel and Lawrence North, and so LN is is one of. The, I wouldn't even say pleasant surprises, but they're 4-0, and uh, and they have a freshman running back that is catching people's attention. Carmel maybe is a little bit down this year. They are 2-2, two and two, got thumped by Trinity uh, on Friday night. Uh, and these schools obviously have maintained their rivalry, even though they are no longer conference foes. So I think this is going to be a good one. But I am looking forward to seeing this LN team and see if they can make it to 5-0. and Well done as always, Greg. 90s on the Jamvi Takeover Saturday night, so be prepared. I have. Uh, I will not spoil this um, for for the listening audience, but I will talk to you about this when I'm sure we will see each other in the studio at some yeah. point over the next couple of days. I have both a random yet well known '90s request Love it. lined up for you for Saturday. So I'm not sure you would have this in the B1057 hard drives mm. that will give you advance warning. But I want yeah. you to think about who would qualify as both random yet well known. That's to be my request on Friday. Can I make a guess? Night. Make a guess. Please. How Please. about um, Trippin' Daisy? I got a girl. No. Ooh. So uh, so so uh, that, that's random. Yeah. But but again. How about the the butthole surfers? Is, the butthole surfers you, pepper. Yeah, it, it, no, no, it's not them either. Uh, a great tune. I used to spin that at X103 myself. It's not the – I'll give you this. Yes. It's more of the hip-hop variety, oh, which is not surprising. No gotcha. One All right. Well, I'll wait on that and be ready. 90s right. coming up on Saturday, buddy. I, I will be in the building tomorrow. So if you're uh, if you're not on location tomorrow, I will tell you tomorrow afternoon. You got it, man. Appreciate you.